Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to John 21. We'll look at verses 1 through 14 this morning. The text is printed in the next page of the bulletin for you also. We've arrived at the final chapter of John's gospel. Uh, it feels, this chapter does, uh, feels sort of like the long ending of the return of the king to me, Lord of the Rings, the last installment of that series all week long. I was hearing the soundtrack uh, in my head, uh, singing it as I would, uh, uh, or whistling rather, actually, when I was uh, reading this passage over and over again. The, the story of uh, the Lord of the Rings, a lot of you probably know, quote it like every other week, uh, <clears throat> reaches its climax when the ring is destroyed, the evil is... Uh, is destroyed there. The ring is destroyed and the fellowship of the ring reunites in victory. And if you're watching the movie, the screen fades to black with nice, happy music. Uh, but if you're reading the book, you look at how many pages are left to go and uh, you sort of got a confused look on your face, like how is this going to go on for this much longer? In the movie, the screen um, fades to black, but then it cranks back up again and you say, oh, I guess that wasn't the end of the movie. After all, with the climax, the king is crowned, the people celebrate, the hobbits are honored, and the screen fades to black. And then it cranks back up again as the hobbits journey home to the Shire, where they sit together in the cozy pub and they share special knowing glances with one another. Um, before Sam, who has found his courage, finally gets up and asks Rosie to marry him, they have a nice country wedding, and the camera slow zooms on Frodo, who's just so happy for his friend. And the screen fades to black and then cranks back up again <laughs> for what for what ends up being actually the final scene. The hobbits travel to the sea. Uh, they say goodbye to Frodo and Gandalf, who board a ship basically to heaven. And then finally, the credits are rolling because, you know, the story had to end somewhere. The story had to end somewhere. But the long ending is beautiful. The long ending after the climax is beautiful because it says, of course, you know, this wonderful story isn't really over yet. This story is wonderful and it's going on. It's continuing. Maybe Tolkien got that idea from John's gospel. John did it first. <clears throat> after the passion, after the crucifixion, after the glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the return of the king, after the climactic confession of Jesus as my Lord and my God, which is what the whole book is ramping up to, Thomas saying that, after the, the great purpose statement that we read at the end of chapter 20, where really the whole point of this is so that by believing in Christ, you'd have life with God in his name, the screen fades to black, and then it cranks up again at sunrise over the lake up in the north country where the beloved disciples are fishing, they've gone fishing. <clears throat> it's the ending after the ending, because the story had to end somewhere. He just can't keep writing. He actually says later at the very end of his gospel, uh, yeah, you could, as we've sung, fill up parchments. The whole world would be full of books telling what Jesus has done. This story goes on. This is the ending that says, of course, you know, this wonderful story isn't really over yet. And uh, it's not over for us. And it'll never be over. It's the ending that never ends. It's the glorious ending. Um, of John's gospel, and, uh, and so that's what we're going to look at now, the, the first part of chapter 21. Anyway, let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us 
to read it, to understand it, to be changed by it, to be granted hope and faith and love through the reading of your word, through your spirit's work as we come to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land... They saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So on the face of it, this uh, story is pretty simple, pretty straightforward. The risen Lord, Jesus makes another appearance, his third appearance to his disciples who were gathered in a group. It says it's his third appearance to the disciples uh, because he's... John is counting the ones he's made to the groups of the disciples. Um, And he provides this miraculous catch of fish for them, and they sit down to a nice breakfast together. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward, but we've learned by this point not to gloss over the fine details in John's gospel. Really, any of the gospel writers um, would be remiss to, to gloss over the details, the words themselves. If we didn't pay attention to the fine details, then this story really wouldn't add very much to the substance of the gospel. If it, if it weren't for the details giving us clues that we should pay a little closer attention to certain things, uh, really we wouldn't learn much more through this account. We already know Jesus is alive from the dead. We already know that the disciples continue to waver in their doubts, have a hard time believing Christ. We already know Jesus can provide superabundant groceries. We've seen that before in the gospel. Like that's, that's not new to us. Are we supposed to just take away from the story the idea that if the risen Lord Jesus showed up at our fishing trip, and if he were in a certain kind of mood, then he'd help us all to limit? Um, That's not it. Uh, No, we know by now that John, John sees something in this encounter. It's a real life encounter. All the details are true, historical, 
literally, but he sees something in these details that God himself has arranged as part of God's story, the gospel story. He sees something in this encounter. After all, he isn't called John the Seer for nothing. And the little details that he provides are clues to help us to see, too. So we follow the clues, and really, they're everywhere. They're everywhere, these clues. Verse 1, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. So if you take this verse, this first verse at the beginning, and verse 14 at the end of this section, you see they sort of bracket the little story, and they indicate what's the main point of it. Uh, Verse 14 says this was the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples, to this group, after he was raised from the dead. So this encounter is about the risen Lord, Jesus, revealing himself to his disciples, revealing himself. John isn't just reinforcing the idea that Jesus really is alive again, and you can believe it. You can believe it. That's not all that he's saying. There's something significant about the way that Jesus is revealing himself here. He's making himself known for relationship to them and to us through the reading of this word. He's making himself known in a certain way. This is the way in which he does it. That's, that's what John says explicitly. It was, it was by the Sea of Tiberias, maybe better known to you as the Sea of Galilee. That's its usual name that we call it by. Um, the other times in John's gospel when Jesus and his disciples were by this sea was in John chapter 6. When a child gave his lunch of bread and fish to Jesus, and Jesus used it to feed, miraculously, 5,000 men, not to mention the the women and children who are also there. And so the region of Galilee, where that took place, same place here, it bordered on Gentile country. It It was like the borderlands. The border between Jewish country and Gentile country, it was called Galilee of the Gentiles, uh, Galilee of the Nations in Isaiah The Romans who had taken over, they'd begun uh, sort of recently, actually, uh, like a decade before the events of the gospel, really, uh, calling it the the Sea of Tiberias. That was the Roman name for it. That was the Gentile name for this bit of land, this sea, this country. So so John uses this non-Jewish name to describe the setting. And what's more, he starts identifying the disciples in similar ways. He says, Simon Peter. Peter's a Greek name. And he says, Thomas called the twin. Sometimes you see that trans, uh, translated or transliterated. Didymus, that's the word. That's a Greek word. It's his Greek name. That's how he goes uh, with his Greek friends. Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, that border country, again. Nathaniel's home area. The sons of Zebedee were James and John. John is the one writing. Uh, he's the beloved disciple and two others of his disciples. They were all together. So throughout the gospel, but especially here, John is clearly trying to relate to his Gentile audience. Throughout the gospel, he's always translating Hebrew words for Greek speakers. He's trying to connect with an audience that's not just Jews. He's trying to connect with a world global audience, and that means us. He's trying to connect with us. So these seven disciples are together in the far north border country where Jesus actually has told them to go. If you read Matthew 28, he says, when they're in Jerusalem and he's appearing to them, he says, go, go to Galilee, I'll meet you there. And, uh, and so you've got the seven disciples here together. Most of the ones that John names, he's already identified in this gospel. 
particularly as having problems with scoffing and skepticism and denying Christ. These are sort of their characters that are developed throughout the gospel. These, these guys are the ones who have a hard time believing in Jesus. So Jesus wasn't like Ethan Hunt from Mission Impossible, uh, assembling his A-team from the best, brightest, most loyal compatriots. You know, these are guys that you could really depend on in a pinch, the best of the best. That's not what he's doing. In fact, uh, here they've probably just sort of lapsed into what's, for them, a, a default activity, this fishing. Apparently not super hardcore devoted to their impossible mission. Not yet, anyway. <clears throat> Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. That's a commitment. They went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. So, you know, first, there's, there's nothing wrong with going fishing, especially if it's your primary way of uh, subsistence. I mean, you're, you're living off the sea. Uh, a man's got to eat. Even a missionary like Paul, who is obviously committed, um, he had to work a side job to pay the bills. But uh, Rodney Whitaker is a commentator on John's Gospel. He points out something that I think we all sort of get. There's, there's a sense that Peter and the others, while not necessarily aimless and not certainly not apostate, are doing what is right in their own eyes. And they caught nothing when that happened. They caught nothing. Their toil was in vain. Their work was fruitless. Uh, Raymond Brown, who's another commentator on this gospel, he says, never in the gospels did the disciples catch a fish without Jesus' help. Uh, there's a lot of times when they're fishing and uh, several times when Jesus is interacting with them and they actually do catch fish. But it reminds us of what Jesus has, has said early in the gospel in, in, uh, in chapter 15, verse 5. He says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Not even catch a fish, Right? Uh, Ransom asks me all the time, when are we going fishing? I, um, I would say I don't know the first thing about fishing. I, I think I know the first thing. You need a pole and you need some string and a hook, right? Uh, so I don't know the second thing about fishing. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what kind of pole, what kind of line, what kind of hook or bait you need for whatever kind of fish it is you're going for. Uh, not sure exactly what kind of fish we should be going for. Don't know where to get whatever kind of fish it is. Uh, the best places for finding these fish and catching them, the ones that we want. Uh, don't know when the season is. Don't know when the best time of year is. I do have the sneaking suspicion that you're supposed to get up early and go out before dawn. <laughs> and I learned that from these guys, <laughs> from the Bible. Because every time these master fishermen go, go out, they go out at night. And that's probably right. That's probably the right thing to do, at least just in the morning before the sun really comes up. But then again, every time they go out at night, they catch nothing. And they are master fishermen. They know what they're doing. This is their profession. It's their family trade. They're doing it right. They're doing it right, but they get no results fishing at night. At night. Clues in the words. Clues in the words. Um, at night, John sees this theme, and he writes about it all the time in the gospel. Nighttime, it's not, not the best time. Daytime is better in John's gospel. He says, 
Jesus says in John 9, we must work the works of God in the day. Night is coming when no one can work. So the literal story here in our chapter, it's also a figurative one. All these details are, John sees things in these details. He's uh, figurative, symbolic things. Night is life apart from Jesus. Night is uh, the, the, the life of unbelief apart from Jesus. And it's a fruitless and barren existence. But with the break of day and the coming of Jesus comes much fruit. So he says, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Maybe it was still a little bit too dark to see 100 yards away uh, in the early morning. But, but lack of recognition of Jesus, who is there to reveal himself, that's the main point, lack of recognition is a common theme in resurrection accounts in the Gospels. Apparently, apparently what people see with their eyes isn't quite enough to really perceive Jesus. It isn't quite enough to really know Jesus, what you can see with your eyes. And this isn't because there's anything wrong with Jesus. Everything is right with Jesus. But there's frequently something wrong with our ability to perceive him. That's the, the Bible says that that's a problem of our heart, not really our eyes. It's a problem of our hearts and our minds needing transformation so that we can see and understand and know and have a relationship with Jesus and trust him, to truly recognize him and know him as he's revealed himself to us. But remember, this is a story about Jesus doing just that. He's making himself known. He's revealing himself, which he does in this way. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. So he's asking whether uh, the, the language there. Is, is whether they've even caught any little bite-sized fishes, any little uh, side, side dish type fishes, uh, anchovies or something, right, little tiny things. Um, and he's asking it in a negative way because he already knows the answer. He says, you didn't catch any morsels, did you? Apart from him, in the night, the life apart from, uh, life apart from Christ, it's a, it's a big, fat, no, nothing, zero, nothing. <clears throat> but with him, he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they're not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. So this has happened before with Jesus. Um, Luke chapter 5, they have no catch all night. Jesus gives instructions that seem kind of ridiculous. They don't make any sense. Um, this is not how this works. But they get a miraculous, superabundant haul of fish. And when Jesus had done that before, when he had done it before, and the other times that he's interacted with, with his disciples at sea, fishing, when they catch nothing apart from him, he says, follow me and now you'll be catching men. You'll be fishers of men. I'll make you fishers of men. He said in Luke 5, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. So, this isn't just about hauling a big catch of carp from the lake. This is about drawing people to Christ from every nation. That's where all the clues are taking us. The sea that they're on, the sea, we've looked at that before actually in John 6. Um, throughout the scriptures, especially in John's writings in Revelation, 
the, the imagery of the sea is used to talk about the unruly nations, the chaotic, tumultuous nations. You've got the, the Jews who are represented by the land. They're on solid ground because of their relationship with God. Everywhere else is this tumultuous sea, chaotic. It's the sea of the nations, the Gentiles. <clears throat> and that's, that's the, the way that this language is being used figuratively. In fact, the, the word haul that's used here, they couldn't haul it in. The other times that's used in John's gospel, this, Jesus is using that to talk about people who are coming to him with faith. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me hauls him, draws him. And he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will haul all people to myself. I'll draw them to myself. So the risen Lord Jesus, he is the one who makes us successful fishers of men. Who through us draws all people to to himself, every people from every tribe, tongue, nation. He's the one who does it. He's the one who makes us able, of joining, uh, able to join him, capable of doing that. He draws people to himself from every nation, a lot of people, a lot of people from every nation on earth, swelling the church to the point of almost bursting it like those nets were almost ready to burst. In the night, apart from him, those nets are empty. But in the day, with him, the church bears much fruit in her gospel ministry, in her mission. So this story is about Jesus revealing himself, and it's about Jesus making himself known as he draws people from every nation to himself through the church. Even through the participation of his people, who apart from him would be utterly barren and fruitless. So this was when John started to put all these things together on the spot here, when he began to recognize the themes that are all coming together in this, this little account, this, this, uh, this encounter with Jesus, and he made the most important connection. The most important connection of, of it all wasn't like, whoa, can you see all this fish? This is crazy. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. He recognized him now. We recognize the Lord as he works in us, as he works through us in the lives of other people. We recognize the Lord. We grow in our knowledge of him when we participate in his work of fishing, when we go at his command, which he has done very clearly, commanded us to join him in his fishing for men. When we see people drawn to him, we recognize him. We see him at work. We who can participate, but really we're barren and fruitless apart from him. We're not the right kind of people to have on, in the boat. Our faith in Christ, our relationship with Christ, is helped when we see other people come to faith in Christ. You'll notice Jesus usually reveals himself to groups of his disciples. Groups. To his disciples when they're together. We're helped when that happens. We're helped by each other's faith to know the risen Lord in his work in us and among us and, in, and through us out in the world. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. It says literally he was a gymnos, gymnos, um, it's naked, uh, which is apparently normal back then to be working in fishing boats naked. <laughs> but 
uh, but it's significant. Um, he put on his outer garment, for he was naked, and threw himself into the sea. So we can almost imagine John joking with his friend afterward. Peter, everyone knows I'm the insightful one. You're the impetuous one, <laughs> you know. Uh, but it's, it, it is a little bit humorous, but it really shows Peter's zeal to be in the Lord's presence. It's his zeal to be with Jesus. And, uh, and there's some tension about that for Peter still. There's some tension. There's some shame about his previous denial of Jesus when he was by that charcoal fire the night when Jesus was betrayed and taken and arrested and uh, being sentenced to his death. Uh, and Peter denied him three times. Uh, we're going to look at that next week. But, but maybe that's why he looks to cover himself before swimming to Jesus. Maybe that's sort of a, a figurative point for our attention, too. Um, he's, he's naked, but he'd be ashamed to be naked in, in Jesus' presence. Um, so a quick application, an easy one for most of you. Make sure you wear clothes when you come to church. But, but seriously, Jesus will <clears throat> address Peter's shame. Peter's ashamed. He's got this tension. He wants to be with Jesus, um, but he's not quite sure how to approach Jesus. He doesn't say anything when he gets there before the other disciples. But Jesus will address that uh, in the next passage. We'll look at that next week. But Peter, he's compelled to be with Jesus, absolutely compelled. Shame or not, he's got to be with him. So whatever's going on with the miraculous catch of fish, it's very impressive. Uh, Literally or figuratively, whatever's going on there, this whole thing is about getting to Jesus. It's about meeting with him, coming to know him and being in his presence, being with Jesus. So Peter casts himself into the sea, just like the disciples had just cast the nets into the sea. Same language. Peter casts himself into the sea in his abandon, his enthusiasm, his eagerness to be with Jesus. And it may be that John is again seeing figurative significance in this, that one who is eager to meet Jesus will cast himself into the sea. That is... uh, We'll go out into the world, go out into the, into the world, into the mission field. Among those unruly nations out there, those, those dangerous waves. Um, because that's where you're going to get closer to Jesus in this life. When you join him in his work. So verse 8, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but a hundred yards off. Yeah, no, Peter, we got this, thanks. Uh, you just go on ahead and get to Jesus first. That's cool. When they got to the, uh, to the shore, when they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. So the language here, we've seen all these things before in John's gospel. It's conjuring up some strong recent memories, especially that charcoal fire where Peter had stood warming himself by a charcoal fire. It's a very specific word uh, that only appears twice in John's gospel. So... Uh, The charcoal fire, Peter was denying Jesus the night during his inquisition there. But Jesus is transforming that memory. He's transforming the memory of Peter's life of sin and unbelief and rebellion. He's transforming Peter's memory of the charcoal fire by welcoming him now to this fire with a hot breakfast of bread and fish. Still the same Jesus who serves his people. Even though he's the risen and glorious Lord, he's prepared a meal for his people, and he welcomes them and he invites them. He provides for his people in his love. 
He's risen from the dead. He invites his people to join him, not just in fellowship. That's incredibly important to us. Not just in fellowship, but also in his own work of ministry and mission. Because he says to them, now bring some of what you've just caught. Even though Jesus was the one who was ultimately responsible for the catch, not them. Jesus. He's the one who'd made them successful fishers. He loves to share the joy of his work with us. It's his work. And he knows it's delightful to participate in bringing the nations into the church. Introducing them to Jesus for life with God the Father through faith in his name. He's, he's interested in the ways that you participate. You, each and every single one of you. He's interested in the way that you participate in what he is doing in the world. So one of these guys, Simon Peter... Went aboard, hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. And in case you missed it, this was a miracle. Because just a moment before, seven disciples had been unable to haul the fish into the boat. And now Peter is strengthened to haul 153 large fish ashore all by himself that's probably several several hundred pounds worth of fish and the net doesn't even tear so there's something to that old saying god doesn't call the equipped he equips the called he equips those that he called he he makes it possible for us to participate in his kingdom even though before his calling we were nobody we were barren we were fruitless Every single one of us disqualified, utterly incompetent, apart from him. He isn't finding the best and the brightest and saying, yeah, you could do this job. You're with me. Let's go work. He's saying, you can't do this job. I'm going to do the job through you, and you're, you're going to participate with me. You're going to be able to because I've called you and equipped you. And now look how he's grown his church around the world. It's ridiculous. Bursting at the seams. How many people throughout the history of the world have come to faith in Christ and entered into the church, even though all he's had to work with is people like Peter and you and me? You might not think that you have much to offer, and you'd be right. Nevertheless, Jesus will make you fishers of men. That's what he says. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And it'll be a miracle every single time it happens. But he can do that. He can do that. So there's this one little detail that's really hard to figure out here, the number 153. Why so specific a number? Why is that recorded? Uh, it probably is, is deliberately recorded, um, you know, for its literal value. It's like this was a huge haul, a huge catch of fish, and we wanted to know how many we had. So most commentators will say, you know, there's been so much debate about this, beginning with Augustine. Augustine said this, and Jerome said this, and all these commentators have said this about all these theories of how do you ca calculate the numbers here, and um, what does it mean, the significance of it. But in the end, the disciples were probably just excited to report accurately on such a tremendous catch. They're probably going to go sell them at market or whatever. You know. They just want to report accurately the number of this. So beat that fish story, 153 big ones, you know. Um, but I think there's probably something symbolic about the number. 
shouldn't surprise anyone who reads what John writes. Numbers and symbols and meaningful little details like this are his thing. Again, go read the book of Revelation. It's just full of that. So I do think it's worth doing a tiny little bit of math here, <laughs> following Augustine's lead, actually. Uh, 153. I'm not sure how you say this. It's the triangular sum of the number 17. I'll explain that in just a second. 10 and 7. 10 and 7. They're numbers that, that signify throughout the scriptures sort of completion and uh, perfection and fullness. You get these numbers added together, 10 and 7, they make 17. You take the triangular sum of that, which is 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5, all the way plus 16 plus 17, and you get 153. So basically you're saying, I think this is on the right track. <laughs> basically you're saying completion plus the fullness of perfection, and then you triangle that. <laughs> and in other words, the number 153 is symbolic for a tremendous catch. <laughs> it's tremendous. Uh, so there you have it, both literally and figuratively. It's a lot of fish. It's a lot of fish. It's superabundance, eschatological level of fullness and superabundance. <laughs> so uh, it's kind of like when Jesus says, in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. Or Ezekiel 47, which Sam read in our Old Testament reading, all those fishermen standing by the sea, standing by the sea that's been made a place of new life. It's a place for the spreading of nets, and its fish will be of very many kinds. And that's what Jesus is picturing for us here as Peter drags this, this full net ashore. <clears throat> Nets that miraculously don't break. Jesus reveals himself to be the true fisherman who draws people to himself into everlasting relationship with God through faith in him, especially as he's lifted up on the cross to die for our reconciliation to God. <clears throat> he can bring all kinds of people together in his church. All kinds. And the church won't be destroyed. The nets won't be broken. Because you've got these warring nations, these tumultuous, chaotic nations being brought together inside the church. And he has apprenticed us to himself as fishermen. He's invited us to share in his ministry. He's called us up for his impossible mission. He's promising and providing the superabundant fruit of seeing people from every nation come into his church as we follow him and do what he says. And so uh, Frederick Bruner, another commentator on the gospel, says, this is how the risen Lord will continually reveal himself to his disciples until the end. He's revealing himself in this way from now on. Because you remember, that's what this story is about. He's revealing himself. He's making it himself known to his people. And he does it as we're gathered together in groups, like right now. He does it as we hear his voice, as we listen to his word, as we pursue him, as we learn to obey him, as we work together with him in the world, and maybe even especially as we dine together with him, which is how this scene sort of closes up. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. But none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. So uh, this meal, this breakfast, maybe it wasn't exactly meant to be like the sacrament of the Eucharist, the Lord's table, uh, 
you know, fish is part of that. Fish isn't on our table now. <clears throat> but, uh, but the substance of it is, is much the same. Fellowship with Jesus and with one another around food. It sounds pretty mundane. But that's how he reveals himself to us. Fellowship with Jesus around food that represented his superabundant provision. That reinforces his promises for the joy of his people. That reveals his, his continuing servant-hearted love for his disciples. They still struggled with their doubts, um, just like we do. But they recognized their Jesus. They recognized him. And there might still be something wrong with us recognizing him on our end. But Jesus is able to reveal himself to us and to connect with us for relationship. And he does it in the most welcoming ways as he invites us to come together to hear from him, to walk with him, and to work with him. And the beautiful thing is the risen Lord will continue to reveal himself because this wonderful story isn't really over yet. Amen. I'm going to close. This will be our prayer. Um, the lyrics from the song, As We Walk Along Beside You, based on Luke 24, his appearance to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. A lot of similar themes there for us, and we sing this song sometimes. But this will be our prayer. Let's, let's pray. <clears throat> As we walk along beside you and we hear you speak of mercy, then it seems our hearts are burning, for we find you in the sharing of the word. As we ask that you stay with us and we watch what you are doing, then our eyes begin to open, for we see you in the breaking of the bread. As we reach for you believing and we go to love and serve you, then our lives will be proclaiming that we know you in your rising from the dead. Amen.